0: Now, I know today, the world more and more considers born-again Christians to be losers. But very sadly, the real losers are these people who will have no entrance into God's kingdom.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, and even though this is the next to last chapter of this book, there is so much material that we still have about a month's worth of messages. We've spent the last couple of weeks looking at the New Jerusalem, the city that will be coming down from heaven and which will become the capital of the new heaven and the new earth described in the first half of this chapter. Today we'll begin looking at the actual dimensions and the building material of this New Jerusalem. But let's rejoin Pastor Carl as he gives us a little recap.
0: Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book. And it's a book that is capturing our attention. It's a book that's stirring our imagination. It's a book that points us to the grand and glorious plans and future that God has for his people. And if you're interested in learning Revelation and you're new, I've preached over 60 hours already, and you can go to the Search the Scriptures uh, app and listen to all the messages where they are there. Now, remember the word revelation, apocalypsis, is a Greek word that translates to unveil, to uncover. And so in many English Bibles, it's not called at the title the Revelation. It's called the Apocalypse, and rightly so. That's a good title for it. The book titles, of course, are not inspired. They're put there to help us to identify what book we're in. But this is the last book of the Bible. This is the consummation of all things. This is the conclusion to the Bible. And I find that it's rather ironic that a book whose name, whose title means open and revealed in many ways is the most concealed book of all. And one of the reasons it's so mysterious is because people do not understand the role that Israel plays in God's plan for the ages. In addition to that, this book is filled with references to the Old Testament. There's over 300 references of the 404 verses in the Revelation that are referencing the Old Testament. Yet never once does it say, well, Isaiah said, or David said, or Moses said. It's just woven all together like a beautifully put together mosaic. And half the problem sometimes for the interpreter is because they don't understand how the Old Testament is interpreted. God gave us within the Scriptures how to interpret the Scriptures. And the writers within the Old Testament, as they would interface with each other, applied a literal hermeneutic, a plain literal hermeneutic in terms of how to interpret the Scriptures. And that's how Jesus interpreted the Scriptures, and that's how the apostles did. Now, certainly there are symbols, there are metaphors, and when you learn what the symbol means, then you literally believe it. And that's why the book of Revelation is not nearly as difficult to understand if we would just apply what God has left for us. Now, we want to uh, pick up in verse 15 where we've left off. This is the third part to a sermon called, When Heaven Comes to Earth. Let's begin by reading our text. I hope you bring a Bible. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God in your lap. We read, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are in its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon. To shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever enter into it, but those whose names Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, born-again Christians today are largely a byproduct of 20-minute sermons and the seeker-sensitive church model that really does not see the need for the sufficiency of God's Word. And so the whole concept of sola scriptura, Latin for Scripture alone, is being denied not just by cultists, not just by Roman Catholics who have, beyond the Scripture, on par with the Scripture, tradition, and whenever the pope makes a statement ex cathedra from his throne, but even evangelicals now do not see the need for Scripture alone because they do not see the sufficiency of God's holy and inspired Word. So think about heaven for a moment. few years ago, a book came out entitled Heaven is for Real. The book recounts a four-year-old boy, Colton Burbo, whose story is told by his father. He claims that during his surgery, he went to heaven. And his description is full. It's fanciful. It's rather peculiar. It really reflects the vivid imagination, in my view, of a four-year-old, not wanting, of course, to get Outdone, a year later, in 2011, Thomas Nelson, a so-called Christian publisher that you used to be able to trust but you can no longer, they released a book called My Trip to Heaven. As a pastor, I received more junk mail on those two books than I suppose any other book I've ever received junk mail on. I mean, they have Sunday school lessons for little kids, for teenagers, for adults, And they want me to buy their material and to use them in our Sunday school and ABFs. Of course, when you read just these two books, they never agree on the details. For instance, Colton Burbo in his book, Heaven is for Real, says the Holy Spirit is bluish. He's transparent and almost ghost-like. And he says the Spirit of God does not have wings. By contrast, David Taylor, the author of My Trip to Heaven, says on page 67, the Holy Spirit is bright white. He has a body and has huge, beautiful white wings. Well, obviously, huge differences in what they saw in heaven. In fact, if you put these books and others like it side by side, they don't agree on tons of stuff. Young Colton Burbo during the three minutes when he was in heaven, said this about the battle of Armageddon. The battle was with Jesus, the angels and the good people going against Satan, the monsters and the bad people. I got to see it happening. I got to see my dad in the battle. Well, if you were here when we started Revelation 20, you know that statement in and of itself is filled with gross error that's contradictory to Scripture. Then, of course, there's a book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, which is the imaginative tale of a six-year-old boy who uh, was in an accident, had a near-death experience, and his book sold millions of copies and, like the prior two, have made people very, very wealthy. And in his book, his name is Alex Malarkey, and there's a lot of malarkey in the book, I hate to say. (laughs) He goes to heaven, and he comes back, and he has his parents write it. Tyndale House put it out, Lifeway Books promoted it. LifeWay promoted it as, quote, a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights on heaven angels and hearing the voice of God. Earlier in this calendar year, this boy, now a teenager, wrote a letter to Tyndale and to LifeWay and bookstores across the country, an open letter. And he said, and I quote, please forgive my brevity, but I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. When I made the claims I had never read the Bible, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins so that you can be forgiven. We must learn not of heaven from outside sources, but only from what is written in the Bible. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent repent and hold to the Bible as enough in Christ, Alex Mullarkey. This young man is converted as a teenager and comes clean. Now sadly, so-called Christian publishers, and there's so much apostasy in the church today, are only interested in making money. That's why Beth Moore is so successful. She is filled with error teaches more wrong things, I suppose, than true things, but LifeWay doesn't care because she has made many people millionaires. And we live in a day when we don't know what to believe because we no longer know our Bibles. On that encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus, he speaks of his authority to tell Nicodemus how to get into heaven he said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, that is the Son of Man. Again, he's saying the reason I can be authoritative is no one came from heaven to earth but me. So I speak with absolute authority. None of your earthly teachers can really teach you about heaven because none of them came from there, but I do. And so I want to tell you how to get into the kingdom of God. In other words, these books like Heaven is for Real and all others like it are erroneous because they are rooted in man-made, man-thought-up theology. But some would say, as a major program on our radio station once was featured, but Paul wrote about heaven, John wrote about heaven, so certainly there are people today who can write about heaven. They were apostles, and there are no apostles today. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have been personally selected by him. And if those two things were true, then the wonders and miracles that only an apostle could do, unique to their office, would prove that the first two things were true. Scripture alone is our authority. And so I'm here today not to share my opinion about heaven, but what God has revealed here in this chapter and I will say, parenthetically here, that I think the reason there is so much interest in heaven, and there should be, because someday we're all going to die, people in their spiritual DNA have a sense that there's life beyond the grave, and certainly Christian people want to know what heaven is like, but because they are so undertaught from the average pulpit today, 20-minute sermons, sermons that don't preach the text. There's all kinds of confusion and error in the church. Now, God tells us to set our minds on the things above, so it's good to learn about heaven. Now, let me set the context. We are studying 10 truths about what heaven is like. Let me just briefly review the first six of what we've studied. First, we learned that heaven, there in your outline, is a permanent place. The chapter opens, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. We examine that the capital city of heaven, New Jerusalem, called by many names, the Father's house, paradise, will sit on a new earth, and unlike the current heaven and earth, Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. The one you're sitting on someday will be burned with fire, but the one that we're going to is permanent. It is a permanent place. But second, starting in verse 2, we learn that heaven is a prepared place. It is a prepared place. John writes, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now stop there for a moment. We're told it's made ready. It's the Greek word that means prepared. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says, I go and I prepare a place for you. In describing the great men and women of the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that these saints are desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So you know, if God has prepared a city, it's got to be spectacular. And the text says here, it is made ready. God is today putting the finishing touches on the new Jerusalem that someday will literally, physically, actually descend from heaven and sit on a new earth. So it's permanent, but it's prepared. But third, I want you to see it is a pleasing place. It's a pleasing place. Remember that? Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Uh, right now, as born-again people, we have been made alive, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and we worship the one whom we cannot see. But that will change dramatically. God Himself will be among them. Furthermore, in verse 4, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In other words, the first way of life, which we know here on planet earth today, the universal language is death, mourning, crying, pain. But there's coming a day when there'll be a brand new way of life. There'll be no more funerals, no more graves, no more hospitals, no more broken homes, no more broken hearts, no more broken hopes, no more crying. You say, this is too good to be true. And usually when things are too good to be true, they're too good to be true, unless the one saying it is truthful. And just to anticipate what people might think, God's Spirit has John right in verse 5, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right for these words are faithful and true. He is reminding us that the revelation he is giving is both faithful and true. Heaven, it's a permanent place. It's a prepared place. It's a pleasing place. Starting in verse 6, it is a purified place. Let's read verses 6 through 8. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost." He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, circle that word, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What a distinction that little word but brings between verses 1 through 7 and here in verse 8. These are not the overcomers of verse 7. These are those who are overcome by sin. Now, I know today the world more and more considers born-again Christians to be losers. But very sadly, the real losers are these people who will have no entrance into God's kingdom. And this this passage is not referring, of course, to salvation by works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. If you are born again, your life changes. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And contrary to the popular easy believism of our day, well, you just pray a prayer, walk the aisle, get baptized, and live like the devil if you so choose because you're going to heaven. What great deception there will be. What great deception there is. And my friends, I want to tell you that deception is going to be removed someday. Heaven is permanent. It's prepared. It's pleasing. It's purified. Verses 9 through 11 affirm. It's a phenomenal place. It's phenomenal. It's absolutely breathtaking. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So his impression of heaven is like a gigantic, brilliant stone compared to clear jasper that's flawless. It's absolutely breathtaking. The Apostle John, of course, is trying to describe what he saw and to relate it to something familiar to those in the first century, in our century, who would be reading this. But this is the place where your loved ones are who knew Jesus, who are absent from the body and this morning present with the Lord. In heaven's capital. City is pictured here like a huge, flawless jasper that refracts and reflects the light and the beauty of the city. We saw a jasper stone being used to compare even God himself in Revelation 4 and verse 3, and now he uses it to describe the city itself. We spent a lot of time on that. Let me just say it's phenomenal, and I don't even know that that's a good word to even begin to capture that is in the city. He's being given, remember, an aerial view. He's taken to a high mountain. And we also learn that heaven is a private place. Verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had... 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So beginning now in verses 12 through verse 14, we're given some of the major design specifications of this city. And I think it's significant that the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles are inscribed. That is the last nail in the coffin to covenant theology. There are people today who say that God is done with Israel, that the church is the new Israel. That's just wrong. It's erroneous. And it goes against hundreds of passages in the word of God. God is affirming his two groups of believing people, believing Israel and those who are truly members of the church, and both are affirmed as being in this place. Sometimes I'll go and I'll see a door and I'll say, private. No admittance. This is a private place. Not anyone can go there. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, that brings us to where we left off. That brings us to the seventh characteristic of heaven highlighted here in the 21st chapter. Heaven is a proportionate place. It's a proportionate place. Now, let's look at heaven's proportions beginning now in verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. Now, of course, the one who spoke to me is the angel to whom we were introduced back in chapter 17 and verse 1, and he's been referenced here a few times. Let me read 17.1 to you. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bolts came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters." Now, on that occasion, apparently this same angel, of which there are seven who hold the final seven bold judgments of God's wrath, on that occasion, this angel showed the Apostle John the judgment on Babylon. Babylon, if you remember, is the Antichrist's capital that he will reign from during the seven-year reign of his false government. And that city is described as the Great Harlan. By contrast to this false messiah, God's city is called the holy city. And she's not called a harlot. She's called the wife of the true messiah of the Lamb of God. So the closeness here of the words between seventeen one and this text are unmistakable. And God, among other things, I think is affirming, look, there's only two groups of people and you must choose your way. You can choose the world's way, which the majority of people will do during the time of the tribulation, or you can choose God's way, but we have a choice to make today, and we must declare which side we're on. Someone asked me yesterday, well, do I have to come down front and say that I'm a Christian? I said, well, you don't have to do anything. No one makes you do anything, but if you know Jesus, you won't be ashamed of Him. You'll be willing to publicly identify With him, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. The fact that the angel's measuring rod is made out of gold reflects, among other things, I think, the dignity of the task that God is giving him as he measures the gates and the walls. And the only utensils, of course, that are found in the tabernacle and later the temple are all made out of gold. But here in the New Jerusalem, even this measuring rod is made out of gold. Notice the proportions as he measures the city here in verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. God is giving us the measurements of this city, and is reminding us that the length, the width, And the height are equal in other words it's as long as it is wide and it's as wide as it is high now occasionally this was true maybe 50 years ago 75 years ago and some of their books are still around you'll get some sloppy expositor who will say that the new jerusalem is three-sided and they'll have what i call pyramidal theology They, they they describe heaven as a pyramid that's just not true every single reference here is clearly of a square technically it's a cube and the word that's used here describes a four-sided city petrogomos with that said i don't think for a moment that god would model his holy city after the pagan pyramids of egypt that was worshiping a false god the sun god ray in addition in first Kings 16 in verses 19 and 20 God describes the Holy of Holies. And how does he describe it? In the same fashion, as a cube. Let me read it to you. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. Again, he's describing three dimensions of it, but we know from other passages it is literally cube shape. It's not pyramidal. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He, was over, he also overlaid the altar with cedar. It's almost like a miniature model of the Holy of Holies.
1: It has been estimated that, given the dimensions listed for the New Jerusalem, that at present every Christian would be able to enjoy an area of about 75 acres in this new city, which will be the capital of the new heaven and the new earth. When we return next week, we'll look at some of the materials that comprise this New Jerusalem. To listen again to today's message, Part 3 of When Heaven Comes to Earth, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV65. Search the Scriptures is committed to sharing the hope found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with those who don't know Him, and to growing believers in their love and understanding of Him. If you can help support us in this mission, would you give generously by using the Give button in the Search the Scriptures app, or by clicking it on the website, searchthescriptures.org, or you can call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll pick up in our message, When Heaven Comes to Earth. Join us then as we search the scriptures.